Good morning. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and be opening to Matthew 26. We'll be there in just a moment. I just want to take a moment and say what a joy it is to be here at Long Run Church. I believe one of the oldest churches in the state. Um, so just a blessing to be here with you. And, uh, and already we have a relationship through, through those guys who just exited through VBS. And we've been privileged to receive those VBS offerings and uh, hopefully get to know those kids a little bit. And they brought us a big stack of cards. And it's just such a blessing to be here and now see people face to face and hopefully get to know you a little better and help you to understand who we are and what we do. And it's good to see Robert all grown up here. Um, we, uh, when I, uh, well, when I left four years ago, he was just a college student that couldn't get a girlfriend, and, um, and we would have breakfast together, and he'd ask me about going to seminary, and then the Lord called Ashley to the ministry of being his wife, and we all have our crosses to bear, but uh, we're so thankful that you guys have received them and that they have begun to settle in here, not just the two of them, but now two babies, and it's just amazing how many things change as uh, the last four years as we've been out of the country. July 2018, that's when myself and my wife and our five kids and our dog um, went uh, and left our home here in Kentucky to move to the city of Zomba, Malawi, and there we get the privilege of partnering with about 170 Baptist churches in southern Malawi, 18 Baptist churches just across the borders in Mozambique, and we do the three things you saw there on that video. We plant new churches, we teach their leaders, and we serve with compassion those in need around us, mainly through our mobile medical clinics. And we've been doing that working hard the last four years, and as we look ahead to going back to Malawi in January, we're just planning ways that we can expand how we do that and do even more. We're looking at sending Malawians across the border to unreached people groups in Mozambique as missionaries to Mozambicans. We're looking into having a partnership with Boyce College here in Louisville so that some of our best and brightest students who have graduated from our pastor training will be able to get associate's degrees through Boyce and go further in their understanding of the Bible and theology and their calling. We're preparing to uh, start a media ministry to get digital and print resources in biblical resources into the hands of people around Malawi, and then there's just so many ways that uh, the Lord lays on our hearts to try to meet needs around us, and, um, and we're just, you, you know, anytime you do ministry, you're always going to get as much blessing, if not more blessing, than the people are receiving from you, amen, whether it's, it's in the nursery or being a pastor or whatever it is, it just seems like God is teaching you as much as he is teaching anyone else, and when I think about the last four years in Malawi, one of the faces that come into my mind is Patrick, and actually you guys get to see him uh, right here in the front. Uh, there he is on that banner there. Patrick uh, was called to be the pastor of his local church in his village of about 20 to 30 people 
their building would fit up here on the platform with me. That church was started uh, by another pastor in our network of pastors who knew there was no Bible preaching church in that village. He went, he preached the gospel, saw people saved, began this church and began discipling Patrick and, and the church called Patrick to be their pastor. He began coming to our pastor trainings. He grew in his hunger for the word, his understanding of the urgency of the gospel. And what Patrick did was he used his own money to buy a motorcycle. And with this motorcycle, he began making these trips to the district north of him. That's Machinga District. And Machinga District is primarily Muslim. And he began going there in order to preach the gospel and plant churches. And of course, as he did that, he faced opposition he faced opposition being chased out of villages by Muslim leaders. They would begin to warn the people in the area, when you see this preacher come on his motorcycle, don't listen to him, don't give him the time of day. And despite all of that, because of his persistence and his love for Jesus Christ, he's been able to start three churches in the last three years in Machinga District. And yet, it's been with a personal cost as well. Patrick comes from a family where both of his grandfathers are witch doctors. And it was always assumed that Patrick would go into the family business. In fact, by the time he was about 10 years old, they began initiating him into those demonic practices. And yet, when he became a pastor, his grandfathers, they were okay with it because from their perspective, that was just another good way to make money. So they were fine until about a year and a half ago when Patrick's mother became very ill. They began taking her to doctors in the city, hospitals, and every time they'd go, they wouldn't get answers. They'd get different treatments. Nothing would work. Time and time again, they'd be disappointed. It just seemed like nobody understood what was the problem, so the family had a family meeting. And they decided that they were going to pool all of their money together in order to hire the most powerful witch doctor they knew of in southern Malawi. Patrick refused to contribute. He also refused to partake of the ceremonies that were going to be taking place on the family compound. And as a result, his own family chased him and his wife and his six-month-old child away from their home away from their fields, their livelihood, away from everything they knew and had. When I finally got the chance to sit down with Patrick, I asked him this question. How did you make the decision to lose everything in order to stay faithful to Jesus? And this is what he said to me. That was not a decision that I made in that moment. That was a decision that I had made long ago, and these were just the consequences of that decision. When I think about men like Patrick, and there are others we could talk about this morning, but when I think of men like Patrick, it, I'm challenged with that question that was at the end of the video. What are we willing to give? What are we willing to waste for Jesus Christ? This morning, I want to see another example from Scripture, Matthew chapter 26, 
beginning in verse 6, a story that I think will be familiar with many of us, but this morning we want to see it in terms of the mission that God has sent us as Christians into the world to fulfill. So Matthew chapter 26, I'm going to read from verses 6 to 13 in the English Standard Version this morning. The Word of God says, Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would speak this morning. We know that 2,000 years ago, your Holy Spirit inspired the words that were written down by Matthew and are printed in English in our Bibles before us this morning. And Father, that same Holy Spirit is alive and among us, and he has something to say to us today through your word. And so for whatever reason, we have come here this morning and it is no accident. It is part of your plan and you have something to say directly to every man and woman and child and teenager that is sitting here today. So Father, we humble ourselves in order to receive your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The Gospel of Matthew is a gospel about mission. Of course, when you think about mission and you think about Matthew, probably the first thing that comes into your mind is the Great Commission of Matthew chapter 28. I know that I learned those verses from the time I was four or five years old at Hardin Baptist Church down there in West Kentucky, and we memorized that Jesus told us that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them, and behold, Jesus says, well, actually, back then we said, and lo, we didn't know what low meant, but that's what the KJV said, so we memorized, and low, apparently it meant behold, and behold, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. But if you think that mission just pops up out of nowhere, they're at the first, the, the final three verses of Matthew, then you haven't been reading the book of Matthew very carefully because mission is all over Matthew. It's all the way back in chapter 1 where we get the family tree of Jesus, which is not only recording Israelite men running from Abraham to David to Jesus, but also includes four women 
for Gentile women, giving us the first hint that the Savior that is about to be born is not just going to be for the nation of Israel, but for the entire world. We see it in chapter 2, when instead of the priests coming and bowing down before Jesus, who is it? It is magi, it is wise men from the Persian Empire in the east who have traveled all the way with gifts in order to bow down in worship before this child who has been born the king of the Jews. We see it in chapter 3 when John the Baptist tells the scribes and Pharisees that God is even able to make children for Abraham out of the stones, which is a hint that God is about to do something that will seem even more miraculous to their mind, that God is going to make children for Abraham out of the pagan Gentiles. We could go chapter by chapter. We could bring up Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, where we get the promise, not the command, but the promise that this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed, will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. But of all the mentions of mission in Matthew, I think it is verse 13 here in chapter 26 that I find the most curious, the most intriguing, where Jesus gives this comment that wherever the gospel is proclaimed in all the world, what this woman has done will be retold in memory of her. What is it about what she has done that connects to the mission that Jesus is going to give his disciples in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples of all nations? Of all the acts of thanksgiving, all the acts of devotion, all the acts of love that Jesus experienced in his earthly ministry, in his earthly life, what is it about this one thing that gets this comment from Jesus that ties it to the mission that Jesus will send his disciples out to complete? Here we are, we're in Bethany two miles east of Jerusalem. You know Bethany. Bethany is the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. It's the place, the village, where Jesus would often stay when he was visiting Jerusalem with his friends. He would stay there in Bethany, just two miles east of Jerusalem. And this time, he is in the house of Simon the leper. We know nothing else about Simon the leper except he lived in Bethany, he had a house, Jesus is there eating on this occasion. Know nothing else, perhaps Jesus had healed him, and that's why he has Jesus here as an act of thanksgiving for what Jesus had done for him. We don't know, that's just us using our imagination, just guessing why this name is mentioned. But as Jesus is there reclining at table in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, in walks a woman. And what does she have in her hand? She has an alabaster flask, an alabaster jar. Alabaster is this white stone. It looks like marble, and they mined it in Egypt. 
And yet it's much softer than marble. And so what they could do with this soft, beautiful stone is they could easily chisel it into beautiful containers, beautiful containers that would be worthy of holding something very precious, very expensive. And Matthew tells us that inside this alabaster flask that would have come from Egypt is a very expensive ointment. The Gospel of Mark tells us a little bit more information. He tells us that the ointment is actually pure nard. Robert, did you put on your nard before you came to church this morning? decided to take a shower instead, instead of skipping the shower and putting on some nard. I didn't know what nard was. I had to look it up in my Bible dictionary, and nard is made from the root of a flower that grows in the Himalayan mountains of Nepal. So here we are, Two miles east of Jerusalem, this woman has a jar that has been mined from a stone in Egypt. Inside that jar is an ointment that has come all the way from Nepal, either by caravan across the deserts of Afghanistan, Iran, and Iraq, or by ship through the Indian Ocean. But either way, and you guys understand this with gas prices, right? The farther something has to travel the more expensive it gets, amen? So here she has something that is very precious, very expensive. In fact, Mark tells us that it is worth 300 denarii. One denarius is what your average laborer would get for one day's work on the farm or the construction site. So 300 is a year's salary, for your average Joe. Why does this woman have this? Is she a wealthy woman? Does she have 50 of these back home? Probably not. You have to understand that during this time period, banks were not FDIC insured. That hadn't happened yet. So, In order to keep your money safe, what a lot of people would do is they would take their savings, they would invest it in something small and valuable like this jar of pure nard, and this would be something that they could hide, that they could keep safe, but also that would hold its value, right? So that as inflation occurred and the currency would have lost its value, this valuable ointment would have held its value because it's so precious. So what does this represent to this woman? This represents her emergency fund. This represents her security. This represents her peace of mind. This is probably what she thinks about if she wakes up in the middle of the night and starts thinking about everything that could happen down the road. She helps herself go back to sleep by remembering that she has this piece of financial security. And what does she do? She walks in and she pours it out on Jesus. She uses it to anoint Jesus. In fact, Mark tells us she has to break the container. It's a one-time use only container. Why does she do that? 
This is her profession of faith. This is her way of identifying who she believes Jesus to be. Jesus is the anointed one. In Greek, the Messiah. In, or rather, in Hebrew, the Messiah. In Greek, the Christ. He is the one that they had been waiting for, the promised anointed king in the line of David, the one that she had grown up hearing about, being read to from the law and the prophets of the Old Testament, growing up in synagogue as a little girl, always waiting, always wondering, when will he come? She is saying, I believe I have found him. I know who he is. This is the savior of our people. And what do the disciples do? They criticize her. Why this waste? Isn't it funny that when someone makes a big sacrifice for Jesus, sometimes it's the people in the church that are more critical than the people in the world? Why this waste? Of course, they have their justification, don't they? This could have been sold and used for the poor. They're saying, imagine the budget we would have had in our mercy ministry program. Imagine what we could have done with 300 denarii. All the widows we could have fed, all the orphans we could have closed, all, all the, the homeless we could have housed. Imagine everything we could have done with that money. And it says, Jesus, aware of this, it's not clear if Jesus overheard them or this was his divine awareness or if like I was a pastor for six years, so I know sometimes people in church, they have those holy huddles and you know what they're talking about, even though you don't know what they're talking about. But somehow Jesus knew and he says, why do you trouble this woman? And so what he does is he commends the woman and he corrects the disciples. And what they called a waste, he calls a beautiful thing. She has done a beautiful thing to me. And here's Jesus' explanation. You always will have the poor with you. He's not saying we shouldn't care for the poor, we shouldn't show mercy to the poor, we shouldn't meet the needs of people around us, but what he is reminding us is that we live in a world that has been broken by sin. And therefore, there will always be poverty in this world until Jesus comes back and makes everything new. There will never be a utopia in this world. And then Jesus says, but you don't always have me. Jesus actually places himself in the order of priority above the poor. Jesus says, I am actually more important and your devotion to me is actually more important than your care for the poor. And then he adds this information in verse 12, that by pouring this ointment on him, she has actually done it to prepare him for his burial. 
Now, this would be difficult to understand if Matthew hadn't prepared us for it because Matthew has put this, this story here in verses 6 to 13 right after verses 1 to 5 where in verses 1 and 2, Jesus prophesies that he's going to Jerusalem and he's going to be crucified. And then in verses 3 to 5, we see that the, the priest and the leaders in Jerusalem are actually plotting and planning to do exactly what Jesus prophesied they were going to do. They come together and say, we have to kill Jesus. There's only one little wrinkle we have to iron out. Somehow we have to do it stealthily. Somehow we've got to do it secretly because we can't have a riot on our hands from the people. And then Jesus says, what this woman has done is actually preparing me for my burial. I don't know if this woman was there when Jesus made that prophecy in verse 2, but I can just imagine that those who were following Jesus, this was something they were whispering about, they were talking about. What do you think about what the rabbi said? Did you hear what he told the disciples? That he's going to be crucified. Now, what does that mean? We thought he was the Messiah, and they were having this difficulty, and we, of course, see it in the lives of the disciples over the next few chapters, this difficulty in understanding how Jesus can be both the Messiah and murdered. How can it both be true? And people's faith is going to be shaken. But I think what this woman is saying is, I don't understand it all. Maybe I don't even understand what Paul's going to teach us in Romans, that this is going to be an atoning sacrifice. But what I do understand is that if Jesus says he must die, then that must be the plan. That must be God's perfect plan. That must be the way that God is going to save us. That must be how the victory is going to come. And despite it all, she comes in and she still says, I believe you are the Messiah. And as a result, Jesus makes the comment, truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed, We'll be talking about what she did. And what is it that she did? She loved Jesus. She loved Jesus with everything that she had. And she loved Jesus as he had revealed himself to be. The main point of this sermon is super simple. It's two words, love Jesus. If you don't get anything else this morning, get that, love Jesus. Jesus. That's the point. That's the reminder here in this story. Four years in Malawi, and sometimes we begin talking to people like we were talking with uh, one of my uh, former professors and his wife last night in their home and telling them about all the challenges and difficulties that we face in a life, especially in a developing country. We go without power usually six hours every day. It's scheduled at the beginning of the week. We know when we're not going to have power, and then sometimes we don't have power when we're supposed to have power. We went six weeks once without running water in the house. We 
uh, are constantly sick and have parasites and malaria and all kinds of difficulties. And uh, of course, the last few years, the difficulties of COVID and um, having it where we can't see people and people can't visit us and especially not getting to see my parents for three years because of the travel restrictions that have been in place, it can be difficult. It's a difficult life. And sometimes people will get an understanding of that and they will ask the question, why do you stay? Or how do you stay? And early on in my ministry, I would answer that question by referring them to the call of God on my life. We stay because God has called me to Malawi and God has called my wife to Malawi. But the longer that I've been there, the more I've come to realize that that is not going to cut it. Because if I'm just going to stay in Malawi out of duty, just because I'm supposed to, I'm not going to stay. I'm going to pack my bags and I'm going to be back in Kentucky in 24 hours time. Actually, 26, that's the fastest you can do it. This woman reminds me of why I stay. I stay because I love Jesus. And that is the connection with the mission. The mission is first and foremost to love Jesus. That's the mission. Yes, the mission is to preach the gospel. Yes, the mission is to plant churches, to train leaders, to show compassion to the poor. The mission is all of those things, but the mission is first and foremost to love Jesus. There's a world of difference between preaching the gospel because you're supposed to preach the gospel and preaching the gospel because you love Jesus. It's the love of Jesus that motivates us and pushes us to do everything we do. We plant churches not because someone somewhere at the seminary told us to plant churches. We plant churches because we love Jesus. We train leaders because we love Jesus. We serve the poor because we love Jesus. And the mission is actually the way that we experience and express the love for Jesus that we have. That's the connection. And that's why Matthew puts this story here in Matthew 26 because he knows that we will never fulfill the great commission of Matthew 28 until we have the great devotion of Matthew 26. I have five kids and a wife. Sometimes she creates these lists, these honeydew lists. Anybody have one of those? Maybe? Okay. And uh, I try to ignore it as long as I can. But eventually you've, you've got to fix the leaky pipe or hang the picture or move the plant from this part of the garden over to here, even though it was happy there, it looked good there, but for some reason it's going to be better over here. And so what I will do 
when I have to do a project like this is I will go get the tools I need, and because I have five kids, I will call one of my kids to help me. Now, my kids aren't, aren't here this morning. They're with their grandparents in West Kentucky, but, um, so you guys can't tell them this. I don't need their help. In fact, I would probably get what I'm trying to do done a lot easier. I'd get it done a lot easier, a lot quicker if I just went and I did it myself. But I call them to help me. Why do I call them to help me? Because when I was growing up, my dad would call me to help him. And we spent time putting up fences and cutting trees and tinkering on cars and tractors and doing all these things. And it was during those times that even though I knew in the back of my mind as a child, I was slowing him down. It was during those times that our relationship grew to be what it is today so that my dad is one of my best friends in the world. I know Robert, and I know where he comes from, so I'm going to just guess that at long run, you believe that God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. You believe that? You're not sure? You believe God can do whatever he wants to do? You believe that? If that's true, then that means that God does not need, there's the important word, God does not need us to take the gospel to the world. He could have done it however he wanted to, right? If he had wanted to put the gospel directly into the minds of every man, woman, and child in the world in a moment, he could have done it that way. But he didn't do it that way. Instead, he has invited us into his work. He invites us to share in what he is doing in the world. And we know it's going to get done because it's his work and we're just tagging along. Why does he do that though? Why does he use us when so often it feels like we're slowing him down, so often it feels like we're in the way? Why does he call us into the mission? It's because it is in the mission that we come to know him better. We come to know him more fully. We come to see fully who he is. Because the mission is first and foremost to love Jesus. The mission is first and foremost to come to know God in all of his magnificence. But if we're going to love Jesus, we have to love Jesus as he's revealed himself to be, don't we? We can't love a Jesus that we've created that appeals to our American culture or a Jesus that I could create that would appeal to a Malawian culture, but the Jesus that breaks down the human understanding from every culture, the Jesus that is not just a victorious Messiah who's going to come and fix everything in a moment, but the Jesus who is the Messiah that was murdered, the Christ that was killed and crucified. 
the Jesus that is God the Son who existed for all of eternity in the glories of heaven and yet left his throne in order to become man in the womb of a virgin born into this world and walked in the dust and the dirt just like you and I, tempted and tried in every way just like us with one exception. He never sinned. And yet he died on the cross, not for his sin because he didn't have any, but for our sin. He died. He gave himself into the hands of those who drove the nails there. And then, through that death, Three days later, God raised him from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He is seated. Right now, as you are sitting here, he is seated at the very right hand of God the Father. And at any moment, he will return to judge the living and the dead and bring about a new creation. That's the Jesus that we love. That is the Jesus of the scriptures. That is the Jesus that we must embrace. The Jesus that teaches us that the way to victory and the way to salvation is through the cross. The Jesus that teaches us that the only way to show love is through sacrifice. And so if you are going to serve a crucified Christ, you're going to have to crucify your life. To love Jesus demands everything from you. Just like this woman takes everything that was her peace of mind, her security, and she destroys it in order to demonstrate her faith in Jesus. She gave him all she had. And did you notice something? Matthew does not even write down her name. Yeah, this is happening in the home of Simon the leper. We know his name, but she's just a woman. This woman, the woman. I think Matthew wants to remind us that we don't love Jesus to get something. We love Jesus simply because we love Jesus. We love Jesus because he is worthy of love. We love Jesus because he is lovely beyond imagination. We love Jesus because there came a moment in our life when the Holy Spirit opened our eyes to how wonderful he was. Even if we had heard the gospel preached 10,000 times and never batted an eye at it, all of a sudden we saw Jesus. It's like it switched from black and white to color in a moment and we saw him and he was worthy and he was lovely and he was beautiful and we said I'll give you everything and sometimes we'll sit in Sunday school or small group or whatever you have and we'll have these discussions as Christians about how much is a Christian supposed to give You know, in the Old Testament, they were supposed to give one-tenth a tithe, but now we're under the New Covenant, so does that still apply to us or not, or is that just the starting point, and we're to give joyfully beyond one-tenth, and we're discussing how much we're supposed to give, and the point of this story is, you give them everything. You may just put 10% in the box, but 100% belongs to him. 
You may just spend one day here, but seven days belong to him. You may just get up one hour in the morning to pray and spend time with him, but 24 hours belong to him. He gets everything because he deserves everything. And until we understand that, until we ingest that and make it a part of us, we will not understand what it means to go and make disciples of all nations. We won't understand why it's worth it. We don't understand how somebody can do it or how they can stay. We don't understand men like Patrick until we understand how beautiful Jesus is and how worthy of love. Do you love Jesus? And what are you willing to give? What are you willing to waste for him? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this congregation and for their pastor. And Lord, I just pray that the words from your word that have been spoken today would would be planted deeply in the soil of our hearts and that they would bear good fruit. Help us each to walk out the doors this morning with a renewed love and commitment and devotion to Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.